Good morning. All right, a little trivia. You can tell me what year that song came out. Just off the number. Including 2009, um, I have done the last Sunday of every year, except for last year, um, and so I'm back. Uh, uh, I don't know what you do with that. It's just uh, there you go. Um, I don't know what that means. They put me on the last year, last Sunday every year. Um, so today we're going to take a look at a phenomenon that is universal among all peoples, all all cultures, all tribes. It's a universal human characteristic. And um, we're going to look at a couple, we're going to dance around this idea, and it's based on this, that as we go about living our daily lives, so as you either get up and go to work, or if you're a married couple, you both get up and go to work, or maybe one of you works, and the other person, your wife, maybe stays home and raises the kids, or whatever your, whatever your normal, what we would call our mundane, kind of the rut of life is, maybe you're retired, and you're busier than you ever were before you had a job, remember i that's how most retired people seem. Um, whatever that is, whatever your normal life is, while you're living it, we're always looking for or expecting something as we look forward. So there's, we're always recognizing that something's coming our way. And so it's a natural thing for us to sort of to be looking for whatever is next. Um, and the question is this. What is it you're looking for? When you think about the future, you think about what's coming next in your life, what's your expectation? What, what are you, what, what's the assumption you're already making about what that's going to be like as, the, as you know, the life just keeps throwing it at you, whether it be good or bad? I'm curious what that is and, and um, what, how, that, how that defines you and how you live. Modern psychology actually has several theories about this kind of idea that we're always looking for something and have an expectation about what's coming next in our life. And um, what's fascinating is they discovered that the way in which we expect our life to go, so the waiting part, the way, the way we wait for that which is coming, has an effect on what actually comes. So I'm going to say that again. So the way we do our expectation can influence the result of our waiting. 
And I think it's an interesting phenomenon. You've heard things like this since you were a kid. And, and, so, and this is like your parents would say, well, if you go looking for trouble, I'm sure you're going to find it. Right? If you go somewhere expecting to pick a fight, you'll probably pick a fight. If you're expecting some crazy hardship, you're probably going to find it. I mean, we all know people that live their lives sort of crisis to crisis. They just finish one up and they're expecting the next one. And guess what? They get one. Or at least their perception of what has come their way is a crisis. And so the way we do our expectation, the thing that we're looking for, we are likely to find. It's the focus of our expectation that influences the result. Did you know the Bible also recognized this about God's people, about people, his creation? There are passages in the Bible that expressly teach us to avoid that kind of error in our thinking, where we're expecting the next bad thing to roll our way, which becomes sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy. There are actually passages that command us to do the opposite, but to not look for the next bad thing, but to look for the Lord, to seek God, to seek, to look to see where God is, is, has his hands in the activities around us. Regardless of the circumstance, those passages tell us that we should be seeking to see God in them. God's active participation in the world around us. Proverbs 11:27 says this about that. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it, which is exactly like what my parents used to say to me. If you go looking for trouble, you'll find it. Now, in a kind of a twist on this, Paul, when he's teaching the Philippians in his letter to, to the Philippians, um, expounds on this idea a little bit, where he doesn't just say, uh, hey, what your expectations is affect, affect what you get. He gives us specific areas to focus in the way we think and the, the way our mind uh, lays out what we perceive about God's creation and our circumstances around us. This is in Philippians uh, chapter 4. It's a very popular uh, piece of uh, scripture. We're just going to go through it. Then I'm going to break it down just a little bit. Paul says this, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and this is Paul, because he had taught them, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, there's, it's pretty clear when you read that passage. It's pretty straightforward. We're supposed to be thinking about and looking for the handiwork of the majesty and the glory of God in everything. And as a result, we get to rest in God's presence, which brings, according to that passage, peace. So I want to kind of break these down a little bit. These characteristics that he lists, these, these things, these ways of thinking that he lists, line up very interestingly similar to the characteristics of God that we see described all throughout Scripture. So Paul is telling us when we 
see things, when we dwell our thoughts on things, we should be dwelling on the way in which his creation, the way in which our circumstance, whether bad or good, the way in which that circumstance can display his characteristics. And we're going to walk through these. So Paul first starts by saying that we should think on things that are true. Well, according to John 3.33, God is true. John 3.33 says this, He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. So we're supposed to be thinking, setting our thoughts on how our circumstance reflects this truth that God is true. Paul goes on, he says, we're to be thinking about things that are honorable. Psalm 29, 2 says that God is honorable. Give unto the Lord the glory, do his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. God is deserving of glory, and he, and he, he carries about him a holiness. God is honorable. So we should be focusing our thinking on the characteristics displayed in whatever our circumstance is, on the honorable characteristic of God. Paul goes on. He says, whatever is just, think about this. Think about the just. Well, the Bible also tells us God is just. Psalm 9, 7 and 8 says, but the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the people with equity. We're supposed to be thinking on the way creation reflects God's character of justice. Paul says that whatever is pure, we should think about that. Well, God is also pure. Psalm 12, 6 says, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Now, to the Jewish mind and the Hebrew culture, seven was the number of completeness. And so, if something was refined seven times, Paul's making a, a a theological argument here. It's as pure as it can get. If it's been refined seven times, it is absolutely pure. And so God is absolutely pure. And our thoughts should be dwelling on the characteristic of God's purity in all circumstance. Paul goes on. He says, whatever is lovely, we should think about. Well, God is lovely. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this. He made everything beautiful in its time. He also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God is beautiful and lovely, so much so that the human mind is incapable of even comprehending the greatness of his loveliness. And we're supposed to be dwelling our thoughts on how our circumstance reflects the loveliness of God. Paul says that we should think on whatever is commendable, which is also defined as deserving of praise. So in the, in the very next phrase, Paul said, whatever is worthy of praise. So I'm going to lump those two together. And Psalm 115.1 tells us God is worthy of praise and God is commendable. It says this, we don't deserve praise. The Lord alone deserves all the praise because of his love and faithfulness. In our circumstances, regardless of what they are, we are supposed to focus our thoughts and look for a reflection of God's praiseworthiness at all times. Paul goes on, he said, think on things that are excellent, which means extremely good or outstanding. And Psalm 148, 13 says this, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. 
His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. He is excellent. And our thoughts should focus on looking to see the reflection of God's excellence in our circumstances. That's what we should be looking for. So let me ask you a question about that passage. So we kind of read through it. We kind of broke it down. Do you, see it in, do you see it in there where it says that when things are going really swell in your life, when everything's just rolling along, when, when the road is smooth and it's maybe even a slight, slightly decreased incline, it's like an easy road, that's when we're supposed to be looking for these positive things and purity and loveliness and praiseworthiness. Do you see that in there? Yeah, me neither, because it's not there. You see, this isn't about our circumstance. This is regardless of our circumstance. This is supposed to be our baseline way of thinking. If you're from law enforcement, this is our MO, our modus operandi. This is the way we operate day to day regardless of what's around us. It's a way of thinking. And once this becomes your baseline, what you'll notice is what you perceive about your circumstances begins to change. See, you're no longer looking for the next hardship in your life. You're looking to see what God is doing in whatever circumstance presents itself. You'll start looking for God and his characteristics and his handiwork, the fingerprints of God everywhere you turn. There was a picture somebody posted on the internet a few weeks ago and I saw it and it really captivated me. Um, we all know people who, uh, who they just live their lives this way. Everywhere they turn, they just see Jesus. It's like, and they're looking for it. If they see some little image or something, they go, oh, that reminds me of the cross. Or, oh, that reminds me of some, some scriptural truth that I remember from last week or that I read the other day. So yeah, here's the picture. And it, there's nothing all that amazing about the picture. It's, it's a one-way sign. And then, of course, the shadow behind it makes this perfect cross on the wall. And, you know, if you're not really looking for it, I mean, I, I could be walking down the street, and I don't know if I would have looked over and seen this. And I'm not saying that, that our, we should be hyper-aware all the time so we don't ever miss one of these kinds of things. But this person looked at this and immediately looked to see if there was something about that that reminded them of these characteristics of God. Jesus, the one way. And it just clicked. And they took the picture and went, wow, isn't that cool that that's uh, turned out that way? Now, I know we're all busy, and this is not about being aware, being aware all the time. You could be busy and walking down the street. I don't know if I would have seen that across the street. But the point is this. If you haven't begun to train your mind to look for God in everything, you will never see this. It will never. You could stare at that all day, and it wouldn't click. You haven't begun to look for God in all things, even the mundane, average, normal things we do every day in our lives. You see, when we seek God, we find Him. If you're looking to see the handiwork of God, you'll always find it. If you're looking for trouble, you'll find it. If you're looking to see God moving in your circumstances, you'll always find it. So let me ask you this. What are you looking for? What are you looking to find? Oh, did my battery just go dead? Could be. Oh, no, it's bad. Um, maybe it's going to go bad. Uh, what are you looking to find? So let me ask you a different question. What do you want to find? What are you hoping to see for your future? What are you 
hoping the next thing that comes at you is. And is that consistent with what you expect to see come your way? Is, is what you want to come your way consistent with what you expect to come your way? If you're expecting despair, which I think is common, let me ask you this. Do you want despair? Because I don't think anybody wants hopelessness or another hardship or a burden or despair or pain. No one wants that. So then why would you expect that? Jesus, in one of his most famous teachings, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, he, was on, he happened to be on high ground and there were thousands of people gathered because he had become quite notable at that time. And so people gathered to hear what he had to, to say. He taught about this idea about what we should expect, what should we be thinking about our future, and, and, and whether it should be hopeful or hopeless. And he says this, starting in Matthew chapter 6, starting in uh, 25. I'm just going to read through this. It's a fairly long passage. Just, just notice the way he thinks and the way he tells us to think. It says the words of Jesus. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So worrying and expecting the next great crisis in your life flies in the face of what Jesus taught us about the way we're supposed to think. What we should dwell on are not the worries of what we, what we may not have, but rather knowing that God has it all. See, not knowing the specifics of the future shouldn't be a problem for us because we know the one who holds all of that in his hands, and he's a good God. And he promises to provide what we need. You see, what happens is when we can't see the future, and we can't, but when we, when we don't see what's coming, what we do is we make assumptions. We start assuming. And based on our experience, we usually assume something that's just not true. And the enemy is right there to help you make the assumption. He's going to whisper lies about the despair and the pain and the suffering that's coming your way. And he wants you to live thinking that way. Mark Twain said this. I love this quote because it's so very true. It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. When you believe 
the lie. You're already hopeless. You're already on a path that is in opposition to what God says is the truth of the way he takes care of us. So I think there's, there's two basic points. I'm going to call them sort of promises of God. There are many, many promises in Scripture. Um, but I'm going to say these are promises that we can hold on to about God based on what we kind of talked about. The first is this. If we seek God, we will find him. Proverbs 8, 17 says this very thing. It says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. That's as plain as it gets. You seek God diligently. You mean it. He's there. He's, he wants to be found, and he will be found. Jeremiah expounds on this a little bit because he talks about when we seek, what are the benefits What's the, what's the big picture God has for us as we seek him? We talk about him meeting our needs. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. Again, a very popular passage. We're going to talk about it for just a minute. It says this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. When we dwell on how badly things are going and expecting the next bad thing, we are in opposition to the truth that God tells us about who he is and how he interacts in his creation. He declares the truth, and we push back against that when we're expecting the worst all the time. Which brings me really to my second point. I would call this a second promise, if you will. And that is God promises that he has a plan and is working it out for your behalf and for his glory. And, he is, and his plan is good, and he's completely and totally able to complete it. He has everything he needs to complete it, and he's working it out for your benefit and his glory. Now here's what it doesn't say in that passage. It doesn't say that you know the plan God has for you. He says, I know the plan I have for you. We're not called to necessarily understand everything about God's plan. At the very end of that passage, he throws in this little phrase about how he's going to rescue us from captivity. He said, I'll bring you back from captivity. Why does he say that? Are you captive? Are we captives? Is there something in your life that has a hold on you? If so, you're a captive. You're a slave to that. Is there some nagging thing you just can't seem to get over? Is there pain or suffering in your life and you just can't stop thinking about it and thinking about how bad it's going to be? That's being captive. God says he can bring us out of that captivity. Are you weary from expecting the worst? Do you want peace, hope, or strength? Because that's what he offers. Listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah. This is talking about when we seek him. This lists the benefits and, and, and the blessings that come when we do that. Isaiah 55, uh, starting with verses 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. 
Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now I'm going to stop here for a second. I don't want to get you, I don't want you to get confused by the whole David thing. Uh, It's not me. Um, God had already promised his people that he was going to bring them a Messiah, a Savior. Now they maybe were confused on what that meant, but God had promised it was going to come from the family tree of David, the bloodline of David. And so he was reaffirming his promise here, letting them know that he hadn't forgotten his promise because it had been many years. People were beginning to wonder if God was still out there. So he was just reminding them of his promise. Now we know now, looking back, God kept that promise. And there was a Messiah that came out of the line of David. But he's just reminding him. So I just didn't want you to get confused by that. But so he's, he's promising that his promise, he's telling us that his promises are steadfast and he'll keep them. Now picking back up, we're going to go to verse 6 and read to the end of that passage. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You see, when we seek God, he meets us with nourishment for our soul. It's not just, it's not just the petty things of this world. You get nourished in your soul and in your spirit. He makes an everlasting covenant with us. That means forever. That means it doesn't end. It's an unbreakable promise. He has compassion for us, and he says he will abundantly pardon us. From what? What does it say in the passage? It says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. We've been having our own way and thinking our own thoughts. And God says that I can forgive you. I can give you pardon for that. Because his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. And then he gives us freedom. This is a great freedom. Listen to this. Freedom from needing to fully understand it all. Remember Jeremiah said, uh, I know the plans I have for you. And here he says, my ways are beyond you. My thoughts are beyond you. You, you can't even fathom or grasp my ways or my thoughts. And so we can, be, we can have the burden lifted from us of needing to work it all out all the time. We're so busy trying to work it out, we forget that that's God's job to work it out. Our job is to rest in the knowledge that he has a plan for us. So I'll ask again, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? You know, we're getting ready to flip our calendar over, and it's going to be 2018 at midnight tonight. And, you know, we, we kind of make this as an opportunity for us to maybe go back and reflect on the year, and that's good. And I think that time, time is a blessing God gives us. But in the big scale, grand picture here, the universe has no idea that we're going to flip some year the planets continue to move around their stars and they rotate on their axis and the snow falls or doesn't fall and it's minus 10 or whatever. It, it makes no difference. It's just another day. 
But God has given us this gift, this opportunity we have, because time allows us to remember, allows us to mark events so we can see that God keeps his promises. We do it through things like ceremonies. So we, we celebrate um, a communion together. And so that's a way for us to remember a previous time when Jesus taught what it was going to mean when he was sacrificed on the cross. We do it through things like Christmas. Last week, we celebrated the birthday of Jesus when God himself entered his creation as a man with a single purpose, to teach us how to live and then to die to prove what he taught was true. And God raised him from the dead then to validate the whole thing. We celebrate that as Christmas. And then the resurrection part where God does raise him from the dead, we celebrate that every year. We call it Easter, Resurrection Sunday. See, time is something we can use to go back and see that God is a God that is true. Those characteristics we went through, we see in time, he has proven over and over and over and over and over and over again that those are accurate. But it is good for us at the changing of the year. We tend to get reflective. So let's reflect a little bit. What have you been expecting? What have you been looking for? What are you looking for? And does it line up with what you really hope for? If not, those need to be aligned. And they can only be aligned one way. And I would be, if I stopped here, and, and it would be sort of a feel-good message, think better, you know, self-help kind of a thing. And it's all scriptural, so you can make a case. But I'd be missing a very important point, and that is this. It is impossible for you or any of us to look to see the fingerprints of a God that we don't know. If you don't know God through his son Jesus, then you don't know what you're looking for. How could I ask you to go looking to see the handiwork of God in your everyday life when you don't know God? You see, what happened is... I talked about we, we believe the lie, we have our assumptions about the future. That's been going on since the garden. God had his ways higher, his thoughts higher than ours, but we chose our ways. Decided we, think, decided we just think our thoughts, and we've been doing it ever since, and everybody in this room has been guilty of it. And what that is is called sin. When God says it's this way, and you go, yeah, but I don't really see it that way, I want to go this way, that's sin. And it separated us from God. It's this barrier We read earlier that God is a God of justice. He is just. He will judge. And unfortunately, the judgment for sin, this separation, this choosing our way, thinking our thoughts, was a death sentence. The judgment, the, I mean, the gavel has already slammed. It's a done deal. Death. Punishment is death. That's the debt that we owe as as sinners, as those who have just chosen our own way. But praise God, he's also been creative and loving enough then to provide a way to have that debt paid for us. For someone else to serve your life or death sentence, it's been done. Our place is then to believe it and receive it. See, Jesus entered the world. Jesus came. God entered creation, becomes the man Jesus, lives a perfect life, and at the end, God punishes him, but he didn't deserve it. What did he get punished with? What you and I had done. Our sin was placed on him. Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 53. 
Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. What he means there is, for the, for the casual man looking at the cross, it seems silly. Why is God punishing this man? This man is just getting beat up by God. It didn't seem to make sense. What they forgot was he was being punished in place of us. And Isaiah goes on to explain that. He says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. There it is again. There's God's way and there our way. We cho we've chosen our own. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity or the sin of us all. That's the gospel truth. And if you don't know that, and if you, can't, if you haven't believed and received that, then, then you, it's impossible for you to seek the handiwork of God in your life. Because you don't know what you're looking for. So maybe what you're looking for today isn't really peace or strength or hope or joy or, or healing. Maybe you're looking for something that's so much more than that. Maybe you're looking for the source of joy, the source of strength, the source of healing, the source of peace. Because that never gets old or stale. You can have happiness for a moment. Because there's no real source in it. It's He who provides all those things that we should be looking for. But it's only by looking in Him and for Him that we get it. Now, if you've never heard that, or maybe you've heard it, maybe you've heard that sort of gospel message before, but it never clicked, or for some reason you were resistant. Honestly, if that's you, really, if you feel like I've said something or God has spoken to you and there's something in you that says, man, that's right. I, I get it. It's something I can latch. I can, I can believe that. I can receive that. I, I need that. The band's going to come out in a minute and we're going to worship. And we're going to do a worship song. During that time, I'm telling you, there's no reason you have to delay. There's no reason you have to wait for some special moment or some special circumstance or some, some special location. The opportunity is now for you to begin. What a better way to start the new year than with a new life. So we're going to have people down here that can pray with you, answer questions, celebrate with you. So the band's going to come out, and we're going to worship together. If that's you, listen, don't push back. You've been doing that your whole life. Or maybe you're someone, maybe you're someone that... You've made a commitment. You've, you, you've received that truth before, but slowly your life has been hard and you're, you've started slipping back into that way of thinking where you're back to your ways and your thoughts, which will never sustain you. This is a great opportunity again to cry out to God and say, man, change my mind. Change what I think. Change what I perceive. Change what I'm looking for. Let me again look for you in all my circumstances. So I encourage you, don't be afraid. Don't, be, don't have fear as we worship. Come down here and pray. Get before God and say, man, I, I need that. I, I want that. And we'll be happy to pray and celebrate with you. Everyone in this room is in one of two camps. You've either made that decision before or you haven't. 
And if you have it and you're thinking, man, if I get up and go down there, people are going to see me. Hey, those people that are seeing you, they've all been there. We, it's celebration. It's not shame or guilt. It's, the, it's the, the end of shame and guilt. Because now you get to say, hey, he's got this. He's, he's paying it for me. And I can receive that. So as you worship, I encourage you, get up and come and pray. God will meet you. If you seek him, you'll find him. Let's worship.